0: Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel is on special assignment today, and we are fortunate once again to welcome Peaches Hall to our Caregiver SOS On Air microphone. Peaches has uh, just a wealth of experience. Uh, I don't want to suggest she's an old person because she's not. Has a wealth of experience working uh, not only in memory care units across this country, but is the director of a senior fitness center here in san antonio uh, the doris griffin senior center where she spends all of her days working with folks uh, who are generally 60 and over many are even older than 70 80 90 who come into the center as a way to engage in not only exercise but social activities as well and peach is good to see you again
1: good to be here
0: appreciate you filling in at uh, the last minute for carol mm, my pleasure you have, in your experience, uh, managing memory care units. I mm-hmm. uh, had experience with people who have a variety of uh, forms of dementia. And the one we're going to deal with today, uh, Louis Body Dementia, mm-hmm. uh, Angela Taylor is going to join us in a minute. What is it?
1: Um, Louis bodies is um, very difficult it you know it doesn 't accept medications like most do it It, it changes um, it 's kind of parkinson 's meets dementia. it has a lot of paranoia it has a lot of hallucinations it 's a very difficult form of a dementia.
0: Well, Angela Taylor joins us on the caregiver SOS on air. Hotline, delighted to have you on board. Uh, she oversees all areas of the LBDA's mission oriented activities. That's Louis Bodies Dementia Association. And she, uh, because of her own family experience, became quite knowledgeable about it. Angela, thanks for coming on.
2: Oh, thanks, Ron. It's delightful to be here.
0: Before we get to what you're doing now and why you're doing it, tell us about your experience. Your dad had Louis Bodies.
2: He did. You know, Dad was starting to show um, signs of cognitive changes, which at the time we all assumed might be the earliest warning signs of Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, occasionally it seemed like he was forgetting things or not able to figure out things that he used to be able to do. And as an engineer, he was always very, very competent with building and fixing things around the house, using computers, things like that. And when those skills started to fail him, it really got our attention. And so we started to talk to his primary care doctor, and he referred us on to a neurologist. And at the time, you know, we saw the neurologist, and Dad was very highly functioning. Again, it was just the warning signs. And the doctor said, well, you know, I think you have mild cognitive impairment. You, this is not Alzheimer's disease. Um, but something's going on, and, and it may resolve itself or it may not, so we're just going to watch it for a while. And while we were there, I asked my dad to also talk to the doctor about some nightmares he had been having and the fact that he had gotten injured a couple times when he was sleeping. And the doctor diagnosed him with REM sleep behavior disorder. And he says, oh, I can fix that with one pill at bedtime. You won't be having the nightmares anymore. You're not going to be hurting yourself. No problem. And that was the beginning of our journey. And I had never heard of mild cognitive impairment. I had never heard of this sleep disorder. So being the good doctor, or daughter rather, I solicited, you know, more information on the web and kept coming across this Lewy body thing, which I had never heard of. And over time, as I watched my dad and I learned more about all of the different forms of dementia, I started to suspect that perhaps this is what we were dealing with.
0: What was leading you to that suspicion?
2: Well, you know, his memory was was rather good. It was more of his problem-solving skills and his ability to um, uh, really um, understand how things like travel arrangements would get put together. You know, some of those higher analytical and problem-solving skills that we all use every day, they're called executive function. And that's what really started to fail in my dad early. He was still living at home, living independently. Um, But some of those core strengths of his were really changing and i kept reading um that this sleep disorder was associated with this other form of dementia so eventually you know i, I pursued getting a more extensive cognitive testing it's called neuropsychological testing and that suggested that this this was not alzheimer's disease and it resembled lbd instead
0: now as so Peach is just listening to you As Peaches is listening, she's shaking her head yes, and her eyes are opening wider and wider. What are you hearing, Peaches?
1: I'm hearing the diagnosis, and and it's amazing because many times neurologists are so important to help you with that, but especially back in the early 2000s when you were dealing with this, it was something that was very what we thought rare and it really wasn't rare it's just that it hadn't been recognized now if
0: you've just joined us you're listening to caregiver sos on air on nine thirty a.m the answer i'm ron aaron carol zerniel our regular co-host on special assignment today and we're thrilled to have Peaches Hall filling in for her. Angela Taylor is with us on our Caregiver SOS On our hotline. Uh, she is the uh, head of an organization, LBDA, and the website is lbda.org, Louis Bodies Dementia Association. Uh, she's also a member of the uh, federal uh, council that deals with these kinds of activities, the Advisory Council on Alzheimer's Research, Care, and Services. Uh, and in your case, Angela, as you begin to uh, identify what's going on with your dad, uh, did you seek other medical advice, other neurologists?
2: Well, certainly we started with the primary care physician, and he did a full physical and I really wasn't coming up with any answers, um, and that's why he referred us to the neurologist. Um, the neurologist, of course, then did a full neurological exam and referred us out later for the um, neuropsychological tests. Um, and Dad was started on one of the medications that are used uh, for Alzheimer's disease, and he actually had a pretty favorable response to that initially. But over time, Dad's, you know, occasional confusion got to be more and more um, pervasive, and he started to have other symptoms that um, really confirmed that this was, you know, this was uh, not uh, what you see in typical Alzheimer's disease. He was having mild Parkinson's-like symptoms where his movements really started to slow down. He was always a few paces behind me if we were going out someplace unless I held his arm. Um, his, so the, the motor skills were really being affected. Um, he, he also over time started to have um, some problems um, that were more along the lines of psychiatric symptoms. Especially for him, it was delusions. He would easily get confused about um, what was going on around him and, and suspect um, things that really had no basis in fact. You know, somebody might be stealing from him or things like that. And so, you know, these types of um, psychiatric symptoms are common in LBD, especially the visual hallucinations. Um, we were fortunate that dad didn't have many of those, um, but they are, um, uh, they occur in about 80% of people with LBD. Over and time. they have to
0: be really, really scary, not only to the individual with uh, LBD, but to the family and friends around them.
2: They can be, certainly. Um, often, they're they're very vivid. They're they're images of people or animals or insects. And sometimes they're not scary. Um, But the person with OBD doesn't always have insight that they're not real. Um, So, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. Sometimes they can be um, pleasant and not frightening. And then sometimes they can be very upsetting. Now,
0: by scary, I didn't mean that it was always frightening. What I meant was they are so real to the individual, but people around them Uh, obviously aren't seeing or hearing uh, where that individual is. That part is scary.
2: Absolutely, and that's why education about the disease for the family is so very important. It helps everybody put in context what they're experiencing and give them a perspective on how to respond to it, that this is the disease itself. It's not an individual person choosing to behave in the manner that they, do, that they are, and it allows you to separate the two and respond to the disease one way and respond with emotional support and understanding to the individual.
0: Now, as your dad began to spiral down, uh, was he able to continue to live independently, or did you have to uh, provide a caregiver?
2: No, quite early on, my dad was not able to live independently. Uh, one of the hallmark signs of LBD is fluctuating levels of cognitive abilities and attention. And so it wasn't predictable what days he was going to be able to take his medicine safely on his own, when he was going to need um, uh, somebody to um, help him, uh, for example, zip his coat up. Um, it really was unpredictable and and certainly his the level of sleepiness during the day was increasing um, that, that's another one of the signs of LBD is this excessive daytime sleepiness um, despite having you know a full night's sleep at night so you know, it was early on. He came to actually live with us for a while. He was uh, We lived several hours away from him, and as this was progressing, we start to, started to realize he really would not be able to live alone again. And so my dad decided he would select a long-term care community in the town where we lived. And so he moved into an assisted living residence at that time, and uh, we remained, you know, very, very active in his life.
0: Now, Peaches, having managed Mm -hmm. those facilities, including Mm -hmm. memory units, uh, integrating someone with uh, Lewy Body's dementia, is that more difficult, more challenging for the operator?
1: Um, it, it, it can be. It, it just takes a lot of training for your staff because, as Angela said, sometimes, uh, you know, many of them would um, see children, uh, animals, and that you just kind of, it's their reality. So you go along with that. But we've had people that reverted back to Vietnam, thought that people were shooting at them. So at that point, it, it, it's a little bit more difficult. And it's not impossible. We worked with it very well. but um, And it's becoming more and more recognized uh, in a 36 36- bed unit, we would sometimes have as many as four people with Lewy bodies at a time there.
0: In your case, Angela, you had said early uh, 2000s is when your dad began to show those symptoms. In your work now with the uh, LBDA uh, organization, uh, obviously more and more of these cases are being diagnosed. Are you able to reach out to folks and provide help, information, and support for them?
2: Absolutely, and that's actually why we were formed. Is, you know, the families really need tailored educational programming and support. Um, because of the breadth of symptoms in LDD, you know, it affects far more than just thinking. Uh, as I mentioned, it affects movement. and it has Parkinson's-like symptoms, such as problems with balance, uh, shuffling walk, uh, muscle rigidity or stiffness, and that, so there's a motor side that, that requires additional caregiving support. They have the behavioral changes, as I mentioned. Often they might have anxiety or depression going along with it. Um, but, and, and certainly the sleep disorders I mentioned, but they can also have um, symptoms that are un- that seem unrelated to dementia, and that's a part of your nervous system that regulates some of the automatic functions in your body, like blood pressure regulation, um, temperature regulation, digestion. So people can have problems with um, blood pressure that cause them to to get dizzy and faint. They can have problems with chronic constipation and other symptoms like that. So this this really that educational. Um, journey that the families go on is vital. So once they get that diagnosis, that's one of the roles that we play. Now hold that we thought. Don't...
0: We're going to come right back to you on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, peaches Hall filling in for Carol Zernial today. We're on 9:30 a.m. The Answer Podcast of all of our shows are available, and this is one. Well, they're all great, but here's one. If you or someone you know is concerned about LBDA, Lewy Bodies Dementia, uh, this is something that you might want to refer to a friend. 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron with Peaches Hall. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank That's you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach.
0: So listen to WellMed Radio. And Get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And this program, Caregiver SOS on Air, follows immediately after WellMed Radio at 6 p.m. Sundays on 930 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Peaches Hall, who is sitting in today for Carol Zernial, who is on special assignment. We're talking about a form of dementia Well, nobody wants any forms of dementia, but if you had to pick one you really don't want, uh, this would probably fall into that category. Lewy bodies. Angela Taylor with us on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline. Uh, Her father diagnosed ultimately with LB. And she, from that, has grown to become a national spokesperson uh, working on behalf of families and individuals diagnosed with Lewy Body's dementia. Angela, you had mentioned that there are symptoms uh, and, and impacts of this disease uh, that are so far outside the realm of dementia, you wouldn't think of it like high blood pressure, for example. What else happens?
2: Well, it's people with LBD may experience um, early incontinence issues because again things that uh, that are uh, often uh, automatically regulated uh, start to fail they might experience sexual dysfunction or have episodes where they're really um, they, they seem like they are unresponsive where their ability to pay attention or even if they fall asleep that it's hard to wake them so so some of these things you would never connect to a Cognitive disorder, and you wouldn't think to alert the doctor, but it's one of those vital components that helps the doctor recognize that this is something outside of the realm of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, the, being uh, a careful detective, both uh, as a family member, a person living with these symptoms, and the physician, they all really have to put their heads together to look for all of the signs of LBD. I agree. Uh, and- It's a relatively young disorder, so that's one of the reasons that diagnosis really is still kind of slow to grow. It actually was only first defined in 1996.
1: Mm -hmm. I I agree with, with everything on this, and I'm so glad that we're able to talk about this today. One of the other things is it's so important not only to communicate with your regular doctor but with your neurologist because they can only do what your eyes are telling them you're seeing and your ears are hearing. And one thing about Lewy bodies is that medication that we give to somebody with a regular dementia or Alzheimer's can really make them twist off.
0: How old was your dad when he began to show the symptoms you described?
2: Well, I think the earliest warning signs we saw in his late fifties. Um, by the time he was in his late sixties, we knew we were in uh, in a dangerous place as far as the um, you know seeking medical attention. It's for him. It was a slow journey. Um, it, we, in the late fifties, it was just an occasional lapse, and you can explain away a lot of occasional lapses. Um, Sometimes we weren't even sure if anything was even wrong, and it took a while for this to become something that was consistent enough that we said, okay, you know, we're, for me as a daughter, you know, I never um, had any involvement in my father's health care matters, and so, you know, I had to bridge that gap delicately, here was this man that, you know, was my parent, and to open a door and start to talk about things that I've never had a conversation with him about, where I'm inserting myself into his private matters with his doctor. You know, that was a, that was a step. That role change was um, uh, part of our journey. And it wasn't comfortable for either one of us for a while, but after a while we realized that we could really partner together.
0: Now, was your mom in the picture? you needed to.
2: No, she wasn't. My parents had been divorced for a long time. So my dad was single. He was living alone in a town where there was no family. Wow. So he was really vulnerable. And I think that's one of the things that got us uh, got our attention, is he actually had had some surgery, and it was coming out of the anesthesia and in the recovery period that he actually kind of had a step down in his cognitive skills. And that really did create the the first quote-unquote crisis for us where he was um, at home trying to recuperate and not able to care for himself cognitively as well as physically. Now,
0: for folks who are listening, Angela Taylor, one of the things that would be really helpful is uh, to not only talk a little more about what you saw early on, but did you keep a journal so that uh, you were documenting what you were seeing and you could present that to the uh, PCP, primary care physician, when you went to see them?
2: I actually did. Once we started going to the doctors together that I became uh, a, 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 because again, I didn't know what we were dealing with. I felt it was really important for me to start jotting down those things that didn't make sense to me so that we could together explore whether they were connected to what dad's illness was. It probably took us a year to get his diagnosis. And even then it was extremely early. He was, he was, Most people at that stage were only being diagnosed in moderate to advanced stage dementia. My dad actually got diagnosed in early stage, but I really attribute it to my being involved with LBDA by that point in time. I
0: started to
2: volunteer uh, because I was 99% sure this is what he had.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. Did did he know what was happening? Did he talk to you about things that were troubling to him?
2: Uh, Interestingly, not so much. He, He did bring up the nightmares he was having. But beyond that, I really had to be the one to open the conversation up. And I think that's one of the things that I have to, uh, I really want to encourage families to do is if they, they know their family members and their loved ones extremely well. They know them far better than the doctor will. So when they see somebody's baseline changing, their behavior, their well-being, that's the time to start having those conversations. What's going on? How can I help? You know, maybe we should be talking to the doctor together to find out what's going on because maybe this is something that we can make better.
1: A lot know, of and times, that's
2: the reality with dementia. A isn't? lot
1: of times they cover very well, too. Even when you bring it up one or two times, they're like, oh, you know, and oh, no, it's all right. Or you ask them a question and they'll go, well, how come you don't know that answer? So they're very good at covering, so you have to be pretty diligent. And many times their spouses and family enable that. Mm-hmm. My
0: mm-hmm. mother, my dad developed dementia, and for the longest period of time, uh, my mom, like an alcoholic who's enabled by family, uh, when she'd walk into a room with him, she'd say, oh, you remember Peaches Hall? Or, oh, you remember your boy Ronnie? I mean, yeah. all those things that she knew he would not remember. And and did you find yourself doing that with your dad?
2: I, I did not. I think that's really, that's based on an individual's temperament. And, and my mode of handling things is generally quite head-on. So that's why, you know, this this was a... A good combination for my dad and I. He was less willing to talk about it. I was more willing to to step in a little bit and say, "Hey, this this isn't something we can sweep under the rug." Um, but I, you know, I understand why families do that. Nobody wants to be confronted with a very difficult reality, and sometimes it's easier to cope emotionally if you don't have an answer. For me, it was harder to cope when I didn't have the answer.
0: Now you so. serve as a liaison to the LBDA's scientific advisory. Council experts in Lewy bodies, dementia, research, and clinical care. Give us an update. Where are we? Uh, And do you have in the back of your room the magic bullet that's going to fix this?
2: Oh, I wish we did. I really do. Like other neurological diseases, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, there is no medication right now that can really significantly slow down or halt the progression of this disease. Right now, the best that we can do are treat the symptoms so that we can improve the quality of life for the person who has this disorder and their their primary caregiver. And in an LBD, because there are so many symptoms, you actually can make a significant improvement in their quality of life if they get comprehensive care across the board of all of those symptoms. Um, Without it, without getting really good sleep, you know, if those sleep disorders aren't treated, then your cognition is worse. If your blood pressure isn't being well regulated, if it's, if it's dropping when you're standing, and you're getting dizzy, that's gonna impair your functional abilities. So really every symptom needs to be looked for and treated as long as it's possible because it really does improve um, for the caregiver, their ability to provide care. Uh, it reduces the distress on the person living with LBD. So that's one of the things that we highly recommend. Researchers right now are really looking for a way to identify the presence of Lewy bodies in the brain. So Lewy bodies are these little microscopic deposits of a protein that we all have in our brain and in our body called alpha-synuclein. But something happens in LBD, and we don't know what it is, that this protein misfolds and clumps and accumulates inside the cells of the brain. And the f- person who first identified them in the early 1900s, His name was Dr. Friedrich Louis, and so later they were called Louis bodies. And these are also the the pathological changes that are seen in the brains of people with Parkinson's disease. So these two disorders are extremely closely related. They have the same spectrum of symptoms, but they present in different order. In Parkinson's disease, the most prominent symptom early on are changes in movement, where in Louis body dementia, it's mostly, it's most prominently changes in cognition, but each disorder may have overlapping symptoms early in the beginning.
0: Now, she's Angela Taylor, who oversees all areas of uh, LBDA's mission-oriented activities. We're going to give you a website in just a few minutes, and if you have questions and comments, you can get a hold of her uh, through that website and, and on there, find help. Uh, you wanted to jump in there, peaches.
1: Yeah, uh, Angela, can you share with people um, what your father's behaviors were and how you dealt with those, and with the kind of medications that maybe you used if you had some.
2: Sure, sure. So, you know, again, um, in in any neurological disease, um, you have the likelihood of a person's natural personality um, being a little bit more magnified because they lose some of the filters that they might normally have. So, you know, my dad um, was always um, very pleasant around people, and so, you know, he, he continued to be very personable, but the things that worried him became magnified. So he, he occasionally got, actually I would say repeatedly, got obsessive over a per- particular worry. Um, I, I remember one time he told me that he had spent the entire day rearranging his closet. Everything, all of the clothes were out, it was all over the room, and he couldn't put them back in. He was just too tired. So I, when I came to see him that day, there was not a thing moved in his closet. So in his mind, you know, he was a very tidy, meticulous man. In his mind, he must have had some time where that's what he was mentally working through, and he couldn't separate through the reality from the delusion. Um, So we saw things like that quite regularly. Um, How did you deal with it? Um, Again, addressing the underlying emotions. You know, um, oh, you know, you know what, Dad? This isn't looking too bad. Let me see if I can't uh, 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 straighten things out here a little bit for Hold you. Hold that thought. We're going to come hey. right
0: back to you. We're talking with uh, Angela Taylor, and uh, we'll get more on uh, her experience dealing with Louis Body's dementia. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, on nine thirty a.m. The Answer. <laughs> We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Peach is all filling in for Carol Zerniel today, Carol on special assignment, and we're talking with Angela Taylor on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, she oversees all the areas of Louis Body Dementia Association's mission-oriented activities, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. And she is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, Angela, we were talking about uh, the kind of treatment and symptoms and medication that Uh, you found perhaps useful for your dad?
2: Yeah. So, you know, dad was on a medication, again, for the cognitive symptoms. These are the medications commonly prescribed for Alzheimer's disease. All of the medications being used in Lewy body dementia are essentially used off-label, meaning they are studied in LBD, but they have not gone as far as going to um, FDA for approval because they're already approved for another um, particular condition. So there's really good evidence that these medications, and it's in a class of medication called cholinesterase inhibitors, and that's uh, medicines like Dinepazil, which is brand named Aricept, a lot of people know that name. Um, those are the standard line of treatment for cognitive symptoms in LBD, and people who have LBD may respond actually better to those medications than people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, they also tend to help Long term, reduce some of those psychiatric symptoms, and so that's a very important medication. Now, how do you know uh, that it's?
0: In, how do you know that it works that way?
2: Because there have been research studies that have shown and followed people with LBD in um, double blind, placebo controlled studies. Because we know, so that means they'll have two groups of people, one taking the medication, another one who's not. And nobody knows what medication they're on, but they study the symptoms over time and compare those two groups.
0: As we know with uh, Aricept, many uh, uh, folks will tell you that uh, with Alzheimer's patients, it it may help in some to slow uh, the memory loss, but in many others, it doesn't. And some complain about side effects. And that's true. There is some side
2: effect profile to some of those medications, especially kind of a GI tract upset. Um, Some people don't tolerate them very well. Others tolerate them quite well. Um, I know my father um, tolerated them, and he was on those medications through the entire course of his his, his, uh, disorder.
0: Now, tell me if, if we can go back to the beginning. For those of you who just joined us, we're talking with Angela Taylor, her experience with her dad, and uh, Louie Bodies Dementia uh, goes on to become a a leading expert in the field. Uh, For those just joining us, uh, and for those who have been with us, are there things you would now do differently, things you know now you didn't back then? And for the family who's seeing the kind of symptoms you saw, what would you recommend?
2: Boy, that is a million-dollar question right there. Um, So... I did some things really well, and I did some things that I'm really sad that I didn't do better, and I think, again, this is all a learning curve. So for those families who are just starting off, Um, The first thing I would do, and this benefited me tremendously, is to come to the Lewy Body Dementia Association and get plugged in right away. Because there you get information about the disease, you get access to other families who are going through it. I had not one person in my life who had ever heard of this disorder. And so there was nobody to give me practical feedback on what I was experiencing, um, what I needed to do. Um, When I came to LBDA, then I found a community of people who really had been there, done that. But in my own world, in my own social circle, not a single individual could provide me with really um, intuitive um, understanding. So that's the first thing, is to get connected to the LDD community. The other thing, you know, I really encourage people to do is to look within their own communities for the various types of resources that over time they're going to need. And and in the beginning that can be hard because we're trying to emotionally adapt to this new diagnosis and the change in our futures compared to what we thought it was going to be, both for our loved one and for ourselves. You know, I I assumed that my dad was going to be there and be able to watch my children grow up, et cetera. And, And some of those things changed. So while we're adapting to the diagnosis, we also have to proactively arm ourselves so that before we need a particular resource or service, we already know where to go. And we know what's involved in getting it. We don't want to have to look for certain types of care in an emergency situation because we may not be able to get the best type of care for our loved one or additional support one of the good examples is respite care you know so I was my dad's primary caregiver he was living with us and I was fortunate my husband was here so if, if I had gotten sick my husband was still going to be able to help out but if I wasn't married and I had gotten sick who would have been able to care for my dad Well, having a resource like a respite care um, facility, uh, some long-term care facilities will offer short-term inpatient respite care. Or you might have programs like adult day programs where um, you can take a loved one with LBD to have a day program so that you can take yourself off to a doctor's appointment. Certain resources like that are really important to have um, access to early.
0: All right, peaches wants to jump in here real of the quick. I would encourage. Peaches,
1: right? I, I really, I, I agree with the respite a hundred percent, and it's so great when families are there. And it all depends on the scale that the Louie bodies, because luckily your father was more of a gentle Louie bodies, but some of them are so aggressive and have such strong behaviors that sometimes people won't take them as a respite. When you say strong behaviors, um, they'll punch, they'll hit, they'll kick. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes in their hallucinations are so strong. So knowing your area and who might help you out is really important. Absolutely. And I think,
2: you know, partnering with anybody who's providing services to you is important. Um, with LBD, it's really important to understand that individual's background, finding a place that has an understanding about person-centered care so that they can talk to that individual um, with, with a baseline understanding of kind of what makes them tick to help comfort them through some of these behaviors. Also, partnering with If, for example, if you have a loved one in long-term care, partnering with them to make sure that they're appropriately being treated if they're having behaviors like this. What's going on behind that symptom? Is it an interaction with somebody that's leading to more aggressive behavior? Is it uh, an underlying illness like a urinary tract infection that makes the behavior spike and the confusion spike um, is it, are they having delusions because of something they've seen on TV? What's behind it? So we always have to play detective before we do any type of treatment in LBD because Peaches was absolutely right when she talked about the medication sensitivities. The medications that are used for visual hallucinations in LBD come from the, the class of drugs that are, were designed for people with psychiatric disorders. They were never intended for people who have dementia. and. One of the unique features of Lewy body dementia is a very high sensitivity um, for side effects, in, especially in, in the medications used to treat psychiatric symptoms. And so that's one of the reasons that other um, type of medication used for the cognitive symptoms is an important baseline medicine. After that, if you can't find another resolution to behavioral symptoms, you might have to try a cautious trial of a medication in a class of drugs called atypical or the newer antipsychotics. But even within that class, you have to be really selective. So partnering with the doctors, with the staff, with the family to understand what's going on and find the most appropriate and conservative path to addressing them is important.
0: Now, do you get but they any,
2: can be improved
0: with that approach. Do you get any sense at the national level where, where you have some uh, experience with the change in administration, which unfortunately brings a very anti-science bias into the departments and agencies, National Institutes of Health and others, are they continuing their efforts and research and support uh, for a look into dementia and Lewy bodies?
2: Actually, yes, and that's very exciting. So the federal the 2017 budget was just passed, and it included a, a continued major increase for Alzheimer's and dementia research funding.
0: That comes um, out of the Obama this, administration, though. The real concern now will be the 2018 budget.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So you know we're we're hopeful that because there's a law that requires the National Institutes of Health to make a recommendation for how much funding is needed to pursue the items and the milestones in the National Alzheimer's Plan, that that's going to carry weight. There are some wonderfully dedicated stakeholders in Congress who have been really pivotal in moving this issue forward. Organizations like the Alzheimer's Association have invested a tremendous amount of effort bringing their advocates to DC. So I think there's tremendous momentum. And and I'm personally optimistic, but I'm also realistic to know that yes, this new administration is going to have some impact. But because this particular ball has already been moving forward and has so much bipartisan support, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed and I'm gonna keep myself optimistic that it's not going to lose too much momentum. You know, no
0: one would wish any disease on anybody, but it sure would be helpful uh, for uh, senior members of Congress if in their families uh, they began to see more and more of these problems and issues. It would make them a lot more understanding and sympathetic.
2: It certainly would. It certainly would. And, you know, I think the reality that there are um, different types of dementia that all have some unique needs, um, it's something that, uh, that is also, I think, important for, for Congress to recognize, that some of these disorders are, are highly underfunded. Um, I, so there's a different type called frontotemporal degeneration, which is kind of an umbrella term. And there's a number of different disorders that, that are just really devastating to live with. And, you know, it dramatically affects even uh, families at a younger age because uh, frontotemporal dementia can start early. Um, so, yeah, it's, this is a vital topic as our population ages, that we continue to build our focus on finding solutions, slowing down the progression of the disease, and um, ultimately
0: finding a cure. For folks who want to get a hold of the association uh, and, and get some help, how do they do that?
2: best thing they can do is go right to our website and again the organization is the Louis body dementia association and so that's how you remember the the, the url it's lbda.org Louis body dementia association lbda.org
0: well we want to thank you so much angela taylor for coming on with us again we're very sorry about the situation with your dad but uh, i mean the good news out of that is it certainly turns you uh, into a very successful uh, advocate on behalf of Louis Bodies.
2: Mm-hmm. well thank you so much i will say we have a tremendous team uh this is far far more than just me and uh, you know i'm really uh, as as proud as i can of this incredibly committed and passionate organization
0: well thanks again you take care
2: thank you so much okay bye-bye, bye-bye.
0: now peaches before bye-bye. we uh, send you on your way because you've got a very busy schedule unlike the rest of us you're you're a very busy person what did you hear? And for families who are worried about whether they have Lewy bodies in their family, mm-hmm. what can they do?
1: Um, to begin with, speak with your, your physician. Talk to your doctor. And then get that referral from a neurologist. That's so important because it's like if I were to tell you or you were to share with me, Ron, that you said you have cancer. And I'd say what kind and you oh, I don't know. You have to have that diagnosis. You you have to know how to treat it. Because just like Angela said, many of the medications that work on somebody with Alzheimer's does not work on somebody with Lewy body's dementia. And the worst thing that would happen is that you see them twist off even more because you didn't have a right diagnosis and they gave them the wrong meds. Um, the other thing is, is that Louis bodies is here, and people sometimes don't get that diagnosis, so they think they just have a regular dementia or Alzheimer's, and it is more common than we thought it was. We're seeing it more and more, and we're seeing it younger and younger. So jump on it. Cool.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Peaches Hall, you find her at the Doris Griffin Senior Center over on uh, uh, Loop 410 at Ingram. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks. You're welcome. Thank we you. We appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us on Caregiver SOS on air. A special thank you to Angela Taylor. For Carol Zernial. I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you again soon. Up next, take 10. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that Dr. we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
0: Thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. We're delighted to welcome to our Take 10 portion of this program, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel on special assignments. So we're going to ride solo here uh, with Dr. Jamie, a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert not only in addictions, but dealing with caregivers as well. And Dr. Jamie, good to talk with you, sir.
4: That's good to talk to you too, Ron. It's a it's a beautiful day today. How are you?
0: I'm great, and Sally, <laughs> Mister Rogers. A beautiful day in Fort Lauderdale. I like that.
4: I know. I don't have my sweater on. Believe me,
0: uh, I I can't see you in a cardigan, but maybe you own one. <laughs>
4: I do own one. Oh, my. As a thinker, you should never tell anybody.
0: Oh, my. Exactly. So I want to talk to you about something that, uh, because it is very much in the news, and this is not a show dealing with politics, but we hear a lot now about lying at the highest levels of government. So the question came to my mind, is it ever okay, appropriate, and maybe necessary for a caregiver to lie to the care recipient?
4: You know, this question is uh, it's a timely one, uh, and I, I, too, won't get to politics because uh, caregivers are quite different than any political animal that we should ever equate them to. But to be perfectly blunt with you, in my many years of working with caregivers, I would say about a whopping 75 percent of them who are taking care of a loved one has lied or said something that was a, a half-truth or literally have hid their emotions through some sort of uh, statement that not necessarily was authentic. How's that?
0: And they're doing it to protect the care recipient or themselves or both?
4: I think both. I think both. I mean, it's white lies and good intentions, I call it. In fact, you know, caregivers fib on a fairly regular basis, and and, and they do it for for definitely for the loved one. I, I, I believe that they think they're doing their loved one a service by not being the authentic sort of, uh, purveyor of, of honesty even though uh, that's a very very debatable point um, and that honesty we should talk about in another show or maybe later that should be done along with a physician and families around them that's a good time to get honest uh, usually the messenger does get killed but to be frank with you most people actually fib or lie simply because they're hiding their own emotions their own difficult, difficult huh. emotions that they, they, they have not come to grips with in the caregiving uh, episode.
0: What would be an example?
4: Well, you know, someone's true feeling could be of anger, guilt, resentment, you know, countless other sort of sentiments that they feel in the middle of uh, taking care of a loved one that swirls around in their mind every day, and, and they really do hide it. And they hide it through, you know, covering up through... Little white lies or fibs, or or everything is fine, which you know the acronym is you know freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, um, and the idea of putting their 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 truth out there really really that It's not something they've learned throughout their lives, so a fibbing or a white lie uh, may work just as well for them.
0: I need to talk about something you just brought up because it went by so quickly. Folks may have missed it. I I love the way you use the acronym for FINE. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional?
4: Yeah, because FINE actually is a fib, too. I mean, as a clinician, I have to tell you, when I do groups and we go around the circle and we look for authentic emotions, you know, sad, I feel depressed, you know, I feel very happy. Whatever it is, there'll be members of a group that will always say, "Fine, fine." Like basically putting a hand in between themselves and you, and and we developed in the world of therapy. Fine was an acronym for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, because it is also the the popular white lie that we as therapists hear that masks the true feelings of the person in front of us.
0: Every husband does it in a marriage. Honey, does this dress make me look fat? Absolutely not, sweetheart.
4: No, it looks fine, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, it may, but we also may be telling a little white lie.
4: Absolutely. Listen, it's about stuffing feelings, Ron. It's not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. Um, It's kind of a codependent thing, if you will. But we do that... and we ignore the cumulative effect of, of this kind of fibbing or lying on our own emotional health. Um, and then we start feeling guilty. And, you know, you've heard me say it before. It does have uh, a remedy, but guilt is equated with low self-esteem. So, really, the more fibs, the more lies, the less authentic we are often, the more we feel bad about ourselves, the lower our self-esteem goes. And then the higher the guilt factor becomes.
0: Now, if you just joined us, this is Take 10. Comes to you at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel on special assignment. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jamie about whether or not it is ever acceptable and maybe sometimes necessary for a caregiver to lie to a care recipient. Let's say the caregiver picks up the phone. It's the doctor's office. The test results are back, and they're not good. It looks like cancer, maybe six months, eight months would be the projected lifespan. Uh, And the care recipient asks you, uh, was that the doctor's office? What what do those test results show?
4: The uh, the first thing I would say uh, that that really does not have to put a caregiver in a bad position is the doctor asks uh, to see us. The doctor wants to convey uh, the results to us. And um, without me getting into some sort of medical discourse with you, my loved one, uh, because I'm not a physician, uh, let's take time aside for both you, myself, and maybe uh, another family member also to, to be there and, and to, to sit with the doctor and let the doctor tell us, you know, uh, good, bad, ugly, everything that we need to do so we can support you. Whereas, again, just to jump to the fib and the lie, uh, when somebody says yeah, everything is okay, everything is fine, Uh, I don't think we're doing any service to our our loved one, our care receiver.
0: That's interesting. So you don't say everything is fine, tests are great. Uh, What you said was, and if you've got an ounce of intelligence, you'd know the news is not good. Uh, But you'd say, let's sit down with the doctor. He or she wants to give you, uh, you know, a discussion of where we are and what this represents. So you haven't really lied.
4: You haven't, and there's a lot of options that doctors can offer that we, as lay people and loved ones, can never do it. And to be frank with you, you know, in my world, it's uh, take your oxygen first. So the amount of fibbing and lying that we we're kind of forced to do, we think you know we're under the illusion creates the the seeds of burnout, um, it, and that's the issue. The more we we stuff, the more our, our emotions are on. Maybe in sleep time or times when we would like to have some peace for ourselves, the more those emotions kind of surface and and the more we feel bad about ourselves. And so when that happens, obviously, we start burning out. And so to me, to be authentic, to be honest, to pick the right place, to pick the right time, uh, to make sure we have the right approach, all of it being authentic, um, really prevents, if you will, the the burnout that, that lies ahead almost inevitably.
0: Does lying then become a habit, though, on the part of the caregiver?
4: Well, it does. It becomes a mask. Uh, We put the mask on, and it's not our intention. I mean, let's face it. it, it, The intentions are always good, but, you know, unfortunately, the, the end result is not. Um, Our loved ones, I think, really do want to know the straight scoop. I don't think they want to know the straight scoop necessarily from us. Again, I can't stress enough to our listeners that we don't have to be the messenger, that often as caregivers go, messengers do get killed, that this is a medical issue or a psychological issue, psychiatric issue. And therefore, you know, we either bring in a licensed professional who knows the case well, and then the caregivers themselves are not up into this position of lying. Instead, they're there where they should be. They support what is being told by the professional to their loved ones, and then they put a plan in place to follow it.
0: When the care recipient uh, looks you right in your beady eyes as the caregiver and starts asking, uh, you know, questions, how do I look, how am I doing, Uh, and the reality is they're not doing well, Uh, but you hate to say that to them, don't you? So you end up fibbing.
4: You, you do, and, you, and I think you define your role by saying to the loved one, listen, it is a chronic illness, and, and it is something that, that is falling upon you, obviously, much more than, than myself, but we're both in this uh, boat together rowing. And our role is not to, to fix what's, what's wrong. I mean, our role is to look at that loved one that you just talked about mm-hmm. to say, look, whatever the doctor says, whatever we need to do, I am here to advocate for you. You know, you you can advocate for yourself as long as you, you know, are, are of able, mind, sound, body, and, 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 and ready to do that. But you have to understand that I'm going to be here to support you in in terms of whatever the physician says to us.
0: Got to stop and you so, right there. And
4: you can trust in yourself, and you a loved one can trust in you.
0: Flat out of time, Dr. Jamie. Thank you. Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer, Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eikoff, Ron Aaron well med radio
3: what a terrific ride it's been
0: and since then and continuing we have talked about everything
3: we've talked about medical issues we've talked about legal issues end of life issues and the list goes on
0: you name a disease and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it Aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones
3: seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on so why do you like doing radio